All right, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4 as we are working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. Good morning, guys. I'm glad to be here. I love you. It's a privilege, as always, to share the Word of God with you, trusting and believing that God's going to speak to us today in a very special way. We're going to be picking up in verse 35 of chapter 4. And through the, the remainder of the chapter. So I will read, pray, and then we will uh, we'll dig in. Verse 35. On the same day when evening had come, He said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took Him along in the boat as He was, and other little boats were also with Him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly. And said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey Him? Let's pray. Lord, we know who You are. You're the Son of the living God. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And You have power over all things. And we worship You in this place. We acknowledge that. We recognize one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess But it's our joy, it's our privilege to do that here and now. So we do, Lord. We surrender to You. We submit ourselves before You. We ask that as Your Word is going forth, You would meet us here. That You would speak to each and every one of us in a very special way. Lord, may Your Word go forth. May it be life-giving. May it be life-changing. May I preach the glories of Christ and Him crucified. Lord, may I bring You glory today. Would You speak through me? May I speak with passion, with conviction, with power, with reverence. Lord, be glorified in this place and have Your way. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen, Amen. Alright, so the reason for the Gospel of Mark as found in chapter 1, verse 1, it says that this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then in John, it tells us, chapter 20, verse 31, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So that's the idea. That's the purpose of the Gospels. So that we would know Jesus. So that we would know who He is and what He is like and what He has done and what He's going to do. And that in that we would recognize this is the Son of God. And knowing that, having that knowledge we would believe and we would believe unto everlasting life. So in a nutshell, that is the objective of the Gospel writings. And no doubt that is very much the objective in this passage that we are looking at today. We see that Jesus as the Son of God has power. We know from the other Gospels and in Mark that Jesus has power over death. We know that He has power over disease, 
over the demonic realm, over the physical. He's able to turn water into wine and to multiply, uh, multiply the, the bread and the fish. But we see that He has power over nature. The Son of God has power over nature. And this ought to boost our confidence when we recognize that He is God. He is the Son of God. The second person of the Trinity. He is our Lord. There's nothing too powerful for Him. Nothing that He can't reach. And uh, we can trust Him in the storms of our life. I don't want to get too crazy with that analogy, but we'll be talking, and talking a little bit about that today. As we have already read, um, the disciples find themselves in a storm. And uh, one of them cries out, if not all of them, Lord, do You not care that we are perishing? And so that's something that I'm going to emphasize today. I want to just say it right, right out the front of the sermon. Does the Lord care? Is our God a caring God? And He responds, where is your faith? Why were you so afraid? Are we a faithful people? Do we have confidence in this God? And that's, that's kind of the main idea of what we're looking at today. So we pick, pick up in verse 35. Verse 35 of uh, Mark chapter 4. And it says, On the same day when evening had come, He said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. So we're, it's the same day. What day? What day? Well, in Mark chapter 4, verse 1, it says, And again He began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to Him, so He got into a boat, and He sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. And from this point, Jesus is teaching from a boat because the multitude would press in on Him. And it was uncontrollable. And at times, it, it was as if they were going to tear Him apart. That's how desperate they were to get to Him. So it wasn't uncommon for Jesus to get in a boat, sail out a little ways, and speak to the crowd. And we know that in the beginning of uh, Mark 4, it tells us here that's kind of what's going on. And from this point, He gives the parable of the, the sower, the seeds, the soils, right? Pastor Bill taught about that, and then he kind of takes a moment and talks with his disciples about this, what this means. He comes back, he preaches more on the kingdom, uh, the kingdom and what it is like. Pastor Bill preached on that last week. Um, it could be that uh, this day um, started much earlier. It could be that many of the things that we see in chapter 3 were a part of this day. It's kind of hard to tell. There seem to be some breaks in the text at certain points, so I don't want to go too far back, but we know that it was a jam-packed, ministry-filled day. And Jesus was exhausted. And then Jesus says, let us cross over to the other side. That's significant. I want you to hold on to that. Because Jesus told them that they were going to make it to the other side. Verse 36 now when they had left the multitude, they took Him along in the boat as He was, and other little boats were also with Him. Some people would take this as He was and stretch it a little bit. You might hear people say, when we, uh, when we take Jesus, we need to take Him as He is and not as we expect Him to be or as we see Him in other people's lives. I would caution you that when you um, study the Scriptures, be careful not to take that kind of liberty. This is just a little side note when it, for my Bible students in the room here. Um, it's, I suppose, to some degree fun and, and people make those little connections and people find that interesting, but that's, 
I just don't think that's what the text is saying. I think it's simply making the point that Jesus was already in a boat off the shore. It was a long day. He was exhausted. Uh, they didn't go back and, and for him to get something to eat and a change of clothes, nothing like that. Just They took him as he was from that point across the sea. And it says that other little boats followed him. Um, in Luke, it gives us some indication that Jesus was in a bigger boat, a sailboat, and we uh, recognize here that there were other little boats that followed him. So it was basically a flotilla. I had never heard that word before, have you? I don't know much about that stuff, but it's a funny word. So it was a fleet of little boats and ships that were uh, sailing across the, the Sea of Galilee. And that's basically what we have. And it's interesting to note, and we're going to pick this up in Mark chapter 5, but when they get on the other side of the sea, Jesus has quite the encounter awaiting him. He's going to encounter this demon-possessed man who has a legion of demons, and uh, he's going to cast them into the swine. So it's just never-ending for Jesus. He can't get a break. He's been preaching and teaching and ministering. He's exhausted. He has to stay off of the land so that he doesn't get crushed. He goes across the sea. He passes out in the boat, wakes up in a storm, lands, and then the demon shows up. And he has that encounter. So that's kind of what it was like in the ministry of Christ when He was here on earth and for His disciples as well. So that's what awaits Him. But in the meantime, they have decided to go from one side of the sea to the other. They had other little boats following them. Verse 37, it says, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the significance of this sea and the storm that we are seeing here. Now, this is in Galilee. This is the northern region of Israel at this point. Basically, the geography as such, it's broken into three uh, sections. So, the southernmost part of Israel was Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. The, the religious, the capital, uh, where all the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the priests, the temple, all that was happening right there. And then the mid part of Israel is Samaria, right? And you know, uh, we all know that they didn't like, most of the Jews did not like the Samaritans, so they stayed away from there. They would go around Samaria if at all possible. And then the northernmost part is Galilee. And uh, this would be typically the landscape was more beautiful, it was more lush, it was uh, green, there was much more water. And this is where Jesus spent the bulk of his ministry, the bulk of his time. And here we find the Sea of Galilee. Now, this is not actually a sea. It's just a lake. It is the lowest freshwater lake on earth. It's 682 feet below sea level. It's 150 feet deep. It's 13 miles long by 8 miles wide. And it's surrounded by mountains. And uh, on one side, the mountains reach 3,000 feet. On another side, 1,500 feet. So basically, this, this lake, it sits down in this bowl surrounded by mountains. And there are summer winds and there are winter winds. So the winds come down the mountains and they, they hit the lake and it creates a great deal of turbulence. Well, there is warm wind that naturally sits down in this bowl and during the winter time, especially when those freezing winds come down, it's very turbulent. And so it would create these storms, these Galilean storms, and they can happen almost instantly, unexpectedly, and it's been said that the waves could reach 5 to 10 feet high, and that is very unusual for a lake when we think about that. And 
Um, so in a moment's notice, this could happen, and it, it came upon them just like that. Verse 38 it says that Jesus, He was in the stern, and He was asleep on a pillow. And they awoke Him and said to Him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Um, what is this stern? He's asleep in a stern on a pillow. Basically, this is the back side of the boat. Um, I did my best to research uh, this, what this would have looked like. It's not critical that we know these details, guys, but you know, part of my job is to reconstruct this scene and put you there. We want to be in the boat, right? We want to see this happening as best as we can, and that's part of my job to put you back in the biblical times. So I, I, I've always kind of assumed that this was a large boat and that there was a lower deck and that Jesus was in it sleeping um, and that would explain how he could be like that in the middle of a storm. But I don't think it was actually that way. As I began to really search into this, uh, the typical boat, what would have probably been the biggest boat in use for fishing at this point, would have been about 27 feet long, 7 feet wide, about 3 to 4 feet deep. So there wouldn't have been a lower deck that Jesus would have been in. And the stern it would have been the back area of the boat. Um, it is possible that it was enclosed or that it had some sort of a shelter or roof over that area. It's been said that guys would have, uh, fishermen would have a stove or something of that in the back, especially if they were going to be on the sea for long periods of time so that they could cook. So it's possible that Jesus is asleep in something like this towards the back of the boat. This would be the place from where um, the rowers would row um, they would have rows. It was a sailboat, so they would sail most often, especially if there was wind, but they could row. Um, and there's a, there's a pillow back there that the rowers would sit on when they would row. And this is what Jesus is actually asleep on in this boat. So that's kind of what we're looking at. That's the boat. That's where Jesus is at. This is the sea. This is the condition. That is why. And here we have it. So... We have the fishermen. This is their thing. They know what they're doing. They're out on the sea. The storm comes. There is panic. There is fear. They're terrified. They realize um, that they're experienced fishermen, but even that does not qualify them for the terror of this storm. And Jesus is asleep in the stern. So they come back and they cry out, do you not care that we're perishing? First, I just want to note, this is really a demonstration to us of the humanity of Jesus. Indeed, Jesus is the Son of God, right? He is God incarnate, God in the flesh, but He took on flesh. And so He was a man who experienced weariness. He was a man who experienced hunger and thirst and anxiety. Anxiety to the point where He sweat drops of blood. Jesus can relate to us. Jesus can relate because He experienced these difficulties and these human limitations and these weaknesses. And I would like to read to you a couple of verses along those lines. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 through 18, it says, Therefore, in all things, He had to be made like His brethren. Jesus was made like us. That He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. He was made like us so that He could be merciful. So that He could be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God. To make propitiation for our sins. That's a big Bible word. That simply means the, the payment 
um, that which appeased God's righteous requirements, the satisfaction of God's righteous requirements. Jesus made that payment for our sins. It says, in that He Himself has suffered being tempted, He is able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus suffered. Jesus was tempted. Jesus was, is merciful because He's been there. Now, He was tempted without sin. Jesus, as God in the flesh, cannot sin, will not sin, was the perfect Lamb of God, spotless. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The point I'm making is, is that Jesus understands. Jesus walked among His people in flesh. He is a faithful, merciful high priest. He can relate to us. It's important that we recognize that as we move into um, kind of where we're going with, with this discussion in this text. Jesus understands. He knows what it's like. He's been there. He's done that. He's experienced for Himself. And He can relate to His creation. So the question was asked, do you not care that we are perishing? Now I would say this is the humanity of the disciples. We saw the humanity of Christ asleep in the boat. This is the humanity of the disciples. Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever been in a position where in your weakness, uh, in your desperation, in your fear, in your anxiety, in your doubt, have you ever asked God that question, do you not care? I, I've, been in that, I've been in that boat. I've been in that boat. I've asked that question. I've thought these things. And so this, this means something to me. Um, and what I'm sharing with you guys are, are the things that the Lord spoke to me even in those times. So let me ask, um, well, let, let me say this. I talked earlier about spiritualizing the text, right? Making it say something that it doesn't necessarily say. We could do that here. It would be really easy to do that. And I, I don't want to do that. So let me just explain this. First off, they were in a very real storm and the danger was real, it was imminent. They were convinced they were getting ready to die, and they really thought that the Lord was not going to intervene, that He did not care, and that's how they were coming at Him. But I think there is a fundamental question that was raised. Do you not care? Does God not care? Does Jesus not care? Is there no concern? So then I think, is that the kind of Lord that we serve? Is that our God? Is He a God who's not involved? A God who is distant? A God who is far away but not close? Are we dealing with a cold, hardened God who has no compassion, has no sympathy? A God who's not willing to intervene and help in our time of distress? Is that the kind of, of God that, that we're talking about here? The kind of God that we serve? Does our God care about those who are perishing? That was the question they asked. Do you not care that we perish? Is our God a God who cares for the perishing? Well, John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. 
should not perish, but have everlasting life. Our God cares for those who are perishing. He cares so much so that He gave the most precious thing that He had to give. He gave His Son. He gave the Son of God that if we should believe in Him, we would have everlasting life. 1 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should, should perish. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. He's not willing that any would perish, should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's our God's heart. Now, granted, we're talking about spiritual things at this point. Um, I'm, I'm bringing this home to us. We can ask the same question as I just said. And um, has the Lord demonstrated to us that He is a God who cares about us and cares about are we perishing? Because we were. We were perishing under the weight of our own sins. Some of the people in this room now are perishing under the weight and the reality of your sin. And God has demonstrated that He does care. And God has demonstrated that He cares about the greater need. Right? They were in a real real dangerous situation, but there's a, a more dangerous situation than that. Brothers, sisters, my friends, there's a dangerous situation for those who don't know Christ called the, the next life. You know, this is not an easy thing to talk about, but the Bible is clear and we cannot escape it. And I remember living underneath the weight of that reality. Before I was truly a follower of Christ, I'll be honest, I thought about these things. I'm living a, a, a dangerous, risky kind of life. And, uh, and I don't know where I would go if I died, but I could tell you this, that I'm not a good person. I know that. I'm a man, a sinful man in my sins. Um, they were very real. And, and that was hanging over me. That's the real danger. And that's what God really cares about more than anything else. And God has demonstrated that. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated that He cared. God demonstrated the fact that we were lost in our sins, separated from Him, and we were enemies. I was an enemy of God. I didn't love God. I was not seeking His face. There was nothing desirable about me to Him. But such is the love of God and such is His care and His concern that He demonstrated His love by sending His Son to die for me when I was an enemy. That's how much God cares for the perishing. But it doesn't stop there. So God demonstrated that He cared in that sense, but does He still care now? Alright, I'm saved. I have eternal life. I no longer have the fear of hell and, and damnation hanging over me. Is God still involved? Well, let's continue on verse 10 of Romans chapter 8. Or excuse me, chapter 5, verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So basically what, what that's saying is, is that when we were enemies, when we were enemies of God, He was willing to go to such great lengths 
to set us free, to save us, now that we are children of God, now that, that we belong to Him, how much more? How much more do you think God desires to, to lead, to guide, to provide, to sanctify, to get you to the other side? Right? That makes sense. If God was willing to do that when we were an enemy, how much more now that we are beloved children? God is absolutely concerned. God loves us. God cares. God is with us. And if that doesn't do it for you, 1 Peter 5.7 says, Cast all your cares upon Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Yes, the Lord cares. God cares. He cares so much that He sent His Son to save us, to set us free. And God cares still. He loves us. He, he forbears with us. He leads us. He provides for us. He sanctifies us. God is with us. God cares. God cares. Verse 39, Then He arose and He rebuked the wind and He said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. So Jesus responded. Jesus arose. Yes, He did care. Jesus cared. He arose. He responded. It said that He rebuked the wind and the sea. So this was two separate things. He, he stopped the wind, but the sea would continue on for quite a while in this condition. And then He stopped the waves. And the peace be still, I, I feel like you lose some of the force in this uh, with, with the way that is stated. Kind of like, peace, be still. But it, it literally means be muzzled. Uh, Jesus spoke to the storm like it was a like a beast, but he spoke to it like it was a, a dog, and he was be muzzled, you know. And the sea had to submit; the winds had to submit to the Son of God. So, verse forty. But he said to them, "Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith?" Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? So, they had a question. They said, do you not care? Jesus responds with two questions. Jesus responds with two questions. Why are you so fearful? And how is it that you have no faith? So let me ask you guys a question. Is there anything in your life that you're fearful about? Are you fearful? Someone in this room is fearful. Somebody in here right now, you are struggling with something and you are uh, absolutely gripped with fear. You feel like you are crushed under the weight of fear. Well, Jesus answers this question with another question. Jesus answers this question, His first question, why are you so fearful? He basically answers it with a second question. How is it that you have no faith? That's just it. That's why they're so fearful, because they don't have faith. They don't have faith. Now, let me talk about faith for just a moment. Uh, basically, what Jesus is talking about here is belief, trust, confidence. That's what He's talking about. 
the day and age we live, and especially I feel like this idea of faith has really been distorted. It's been perverted. There are a lot of people out there who put so much emphasis on faith as if faith is it. Faith and faith. That's basically what it is. If you have faith, you can do this. You can speak that. This will happen. You can guarantee this or that. But it's faith and faith. But that's not, the, that's not what it's about. It's the object of our faith. We have confidence in the object of our faith. And who is the object of our faith? Jesus. Faith in Jesus. Confidence. Trust. Belief in Jesus. That's where it comes from. That's where our faith ought to rest. And so we see faith kind of in three different ways in the New Testament. There is the faith, right? There is the, the Christian religion, if you will. Some people don't like that word, but the, the body of revealed truths that make up the Christian faith, all right? So we as believers in Jesus, we are a part of the common faith. But then there's faith in the noun form. It's something that we have. It's something that we possess. It's, it's ours. But then there's faith in the verb form when it becomes an action. When it is something that we exercise. Something which is ours, which we possess, becomes something that we begin to act on. Paul, in 2 Timothy verse 1, he says, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know who I have believed. And that's that, that same word there, that same Greek word. I know who I have believed, and I am persuaded, or I am convinced, that He is able to keep what I have committed to Him until that day. Paul was a man who experienced great hardship, far beyond anything most likely any of us in this room will ever experience. So he had every right to be fearful. He had every right to struggle but uh, he was not shaken. He was not ashamed. He knew in whom he believed. He knew in whom his trust belonged. And he was convinced that God was able to keep that which he had entrusted to him, his very life. And that's what it boils down to. See, the disciples had faith. They did. They left everything to follow Jesus. Is that not faith? They dropped everything. They followed Him in a moment's notice. That's faith. But their faith wasn't fully informed. Their faith wasn't fully informed. They were right to be fearful in this situation, but they didn't know who it was who was in the boat with them. They didn't understand who it was who was standing in the boat, who was asleep, as it were, at the stern. They didn't understand. So it is right that they were fearful, but they still didn't have that confidence they still didn't have that confidence in Jesus. That confidence that I think we lack at times. So verse 41, it says, And they feared exceedingly, and they said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey Him? So now they're really afraid. They were terrified before, and now they're really terrified. And the storm has ceased. It's gone. But now they realize to a greater extent, who's in the boat with them. And they're exceedingly fearful. And now they have a question, another question. This is question number four. The first one was, do you not care that we are perishing? Then Jesus responds, why are you so fearful? Three, how is it that you have no faith? And now the fourth question, who can this be? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? And the answer is, He's the Son of God. 
He's the Son of God. He is the one to whom they had entrusted their very lives. And the same is true for us. He is the one to whom we have bowed the need, the one to whom we have submitted our lives, the one to whom we have entrusted our very souls, our eternal souls. And we should, we ought to, we can have that confidence that no matter the storm, no matter the waves, no matter how high they may be, how unexpected they were, how quickly they came in, we have confidence that we know in whom we've believed and we are convinced that He is able to keep that which we have entrusted to Him no matter what. Do you have that confidence? Do you have that confidence today? Because He is the Son of God. He is the Lord. He is Jesus. He is our King. And no matter the waves, no matter the storm, we can have that confidence. We can have that trust we can be fearful, but we know who to go to in the midst of our fear. I think that's part of it. Why did they, they were scared. Why did they wait so long? You know, they should have just went to Jesus right away. They should have just went to Jesus. So I'm going to close here. I'd like to read a poem to you guys, if I may. I didn't write it. I'm not a, I'm not a poet. Um, it's, it's a little lengthy. It might take a minute or two. Um, it's written by a Calvary Chapel pastor in, in Bangor, Maine. His name is Ken Graves. I don't know how many of you uh, have heard this name. Um, but I, I would like to read this. I, I heard him recite this in person once, um, just from memory. And he's got this towering voice that I, I can't even compare it with. So this doesn't do it justice the way he did. But I'd like to share it with you nonetheless. It's basically just recounting this 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 story. We really thought we knew Him. We answered His call and we followed. A mismatched band of men we were sailing off into tomorrow. I never knew a man to work so hard and spend himself like Him. And at last I saw Him finally lay down while His old light was growing dim. And darkness came as did the wind. That lake became a beast that howled and roared and reached for us thirteen mortals for its feast. All I believed now seemed a lie and nothing made any sense. Waves of terror washed over my soul, even, excuse me, each one even more intense. I felt my way to the back of the boat to where I'd seen him lay. So human was he that in his fatigue, despite those pounding waves, he slept like a man unaware that there was any reason for fear, like one who knew just where he was going and what he was doing here. Then one angry thought broke through my fear as my panic reached its peak. It erupted out of the hostile question I could not help but speak. We're going to die! I cried aloud to the one who would lead us there. You said let's go over, but we're going under. How is it that you don't care? At first he said nothing, but seemed to be struggling with a mind not fully awakened. Straight from his dream into our nightmare, yet he wasn't the least bit shaken. Oh, he stood up suddenly and steadied himself with one hand he held the ropes. Like holding the reins of a stallion, he rode that rising and falling boat. One hand on the ropes, one hand in the air, as we cowered along the sides, he confronted that beast that caused us to cower, so frightened and terrified. The words that he spoke were not a request, they were not a victim's plea. 
His words were not louder than the howl of the wind of the roar of the Galilee, but His words carried power, undeniable power. Even the force of the wind had to flee. Mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea. He spoke to that wind like it was a dog. His command muzzled its jaw and it fled with its tail tucked between its legs. We huddled in silence and awe. Everything was quiet upon hearing those words, the water, the earth, and the sky. Nothing more silent and speechless than we who just witnessed this with our eyes. This man who took lordship over nature, for whom nature immediately complied, now turned his gaze upon us little men just beginning to slowly arise. Why were you afraid, he asked? How is it that you have no faith? We had no answer to give him then. Looking back, we could only say that we were afraid of what was against us because we did not realize what manner of man this was that we followed and trusted with our very lives. We had no answer for his question to us, but we had many questions of our own. Someone finally spoke those words that still echo in my soul. What manner of man is this indeed? Still more than I can know. Still more than I can know. That's our Lord. Amen.